Hey, movie lovers, welcome back for another Anatomy of Movie here at the Popcorn Talk Network. Today we talk about Steve Carell's latest movie alongside Timothy Chalamet from Beautiful Boys. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, I had to say his proper French pronunciation. Mm-hmm. I have Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. I'm Phil Svitek. Missing in action still is Dimitri Panos. Yes. Um, we, we've got a lot to talk about. For those of you joining us for the very first time, we're not just a movie review show. We're going to give our opinions, of course, and kind of talk about it from that perspective, but we're going to give you some behind the scenes, the making of, you know, what went into it, because there's a lot. It fascinates us, and we hope that it fascinates you equally, which, of course, leads to box office and all that stuff, right? With a movie like this, too, there's going to be some Oscar predictions that we're going to be kind of making. You know, it's Oscar countdown. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So from that description alone, you could probably tell that we're a little bit spoiler-filled. So be forewarned, we're going to talk about the entirety of the movie. Uh, therefore, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you see it first. But, hey, to each his own. I'm not here to judge. To that, if you want to follow along in terms of our rundown and what we have to talk about, we do have... A PDF in the description box that has the various information that sometimes we try to get to, but might not always get to, you know? Depends how the conversation goes. But it rounds it out. Last but not least, you as an audience member, you get to participate in the conversation. Yes, Marissa and I are doing the jibber-jabbering here today. <laughs> jibber-jabber, jibber-jabber. But you get to, you know, whether it's in the live chat on the day of, or after the fact in the comments section, or just writing a review, or tweeting us, whatever the case may be, you get to participate in the conversation. We love that. That's what movies are all about, is really sharing and conversing. But without further ado, let's share our overall (laughs) thoughts on Beautiful Boy, Marissa. Oh man, where to begin? Okay, so I went into this film not knowing anything about the real life story. Nothing. Clean palette. Um, clean slate going in and I've only seen the trailer maybe twice and the trailer doesn't give you a lot other than the fact that it's a fairly tumultuous tumultuous relationship between the father and the son and I was like okay what caused that and so I knew it was going to be a heavy drama in that sense while watching it didn't realize it was going to be a very drug addiction drug addled storyline I was like ah crap and there was no moments of levity, so this was a very, very hard movie, and no pun intended, it was a very, very hard pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. And watching it, I just kept hoping that like there'd be some like semblance of hope or happiness at the end, and it still left me uneasy. And it's not an easy film. It's not an easy film by, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, very deliberate, because... Um, a lot of the consensus from you know the people kind of signing on to it which we'll talk about they had this feeling that uh you know i I don't want to make a hollywood movie quote unquote that has just this happy ending and we have to be honest about it and the movie certainly is honest now it's one side of it what's interesting to for me i what i appreciate is the research alongside of it because the real life nick does kind of pull out of this, and he's just, yeah, I would argue that he's a successful writer. I mean, he's writing for 13 Reasons Why. Mm-hmm. Probably apropos, if, if you know anything about that Netflix show, it's not an easy one to swallow either. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but but I think he can, you know, he's as honest to that writing, and, and the fact that, uh, is it eight years sober, I believe? Um, yeah, that he, he's so, going on eight. 
kudos to him. Um, anyway, uh, as, as far as this movie, for me, I appreciated what it did, um, and I, I, I certainly wasn't expecting to have it be what it is. I mean, these... This is like a for me a companion piece to a Star Is Born because if I just want to like, mm-hmm. I just what's the word? I don't even have a word for it. But like, I'll just say like if you want the feels in like the saddest deepest of ways, go see both movies. Right. Well, in fairness, if you're gonna make that comparison, otherwise, a Star Is Born is so much better. Um, that movie had moments of comedy and levity. Like you had moments to breathe. And and then go back into the seriousness of whatever the the alcoholism and addiction that Jackson Maine had. This one is just straight addiction through and through. He he had his moments of relapse, um, moments when he was clean, but. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Even when he was clean and sober, it wasn't happy. It was just you're just watching him struggle to stay clean. Um, so there was really no moments of humor that lightened the tone of the film. Well, what the movie it the, the movie is very deliberate about this cycle and how hard it is to break this cycle. We open up, you know, sort of middle of the movie where the dad. You know, it's like, hey, I want to figure. I want to figure this out. I got two questions. What's what's it happening? What's happening to him? And how do I fix this for him? How do I help, help him? him? And those, out of, out of any question that he could have asked, those are two very honest and solid questions. And I think those are the main questions that a parent or any loving family member or you know companion would ask to help someone who needs help um, if they can't help themselves and the, yeah, like very justified questions, but also it already puts you in a state like this has already been going on, you know, for a while now. Now we have to take it back to how you even started. So to see this, the slow, painful progression from the beginning to the end, um, I, I liked how it started in the middle and then we, you know, kind of got that nonlinear storytelling. Yeah. And the, the title is also very apropos. Um, what I like the movie there really isn't necessarily it, it, it they're both the central characters you know it's his struggle but it's it's also the father's struggle with you know what's happening and losing his beautiful boy mm-hmm. um, and that's that's very sad and you know, like the you know when you look at it from that when you look at it from a storytelling perspective the crisis really happens when he when when Nick calls his dad and says, "Hey, I need your help," and the dad just tells him, "No, I can't." Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it, after so it, it, it it's interesting how it ramps up because it is, as you say, it is those very same beats. Like, okay, trying to get help, but doesn't work. Trying to get help, but doesn't work. And and you might say that's repetitive, but it it, it ramps up the stakes every time, and in a unique way. Yeah, it's this vicious cycle that we go in. And I think also what I had a hard time when we kept following Nick, um, 
we only go back to the beginning of his drug addiction. We never really get a lot of his past. But yeah, we see photos and stuff of when he was a little boy and just a flashback. But we don't really sense his personality yet and like how likable and how smart of a guy he really was. It's only told to us. So it, so they only gave us like small nuggets for us to believe that he was a good, clean kid who had a lot of things going on, but it didn't establish his personality. And it, it was hard to understand because he seemed like he was just a guy or a kid who was just bored and started experimenting drugs. And I can't, me personally, I can't feel for a character because you started this this problem only because you were bored. Well, in that sense, you can then relate to the father because he doesn't understand either, right? And on paper, if you really look at it, Nick, Nick's got a good life. Family that loves him. Uh, yes, the parents were divorced, but they seemed like the relationship was good. Like it seemed loving enough. It wasn't. It, it certainly wasn't like a divorce that you know you, you could say like things were thrown and people were yelling constantly. It seemed like he had a pretty decent upbringing in that perspective. And so, he, when he starts doing drugs, it. It does seem out of nowhere, but that's also kind of what the, I th- – number one, it is true to life because that's what happened to him. But mm-hmm. the fact that you don't know I think is a big part of most people that deal with addiction from the side of the father. That's what they deal with is I don't get it. Right. And it's also just frustrating as a viewer um, because you, you just have to question like why did you even start and this is why I, I always preach during so many television shows and after shows and and movie reviews that we do here in within our all-encompassing networks it's like don't ever start drugs because it really doesn't do shit for you um so yeah the, but <laughs> it's, PSA. Yes, rifle PSA. like there's no point in starting like hard drugs like this because it will ruin your life rather than you know actually enhance it um, it, it's frustrating to watch because he had such a loving foundation with like, yeah, his parents divorced, but he didn't it didn't seem like he had like a major life situation that happened to him that would cause him to do drugs. I was like, I know a lot of a lot of other people who had life tragedies and they turned towards drugs to feel better. Like not to say that gave them excuse, but it gave them a means of why they started and his start was be- seems like out of just sheer boredom and stupidity. I don't know. Contextually, the movie doesn't. Yes, it, it's kind of boredom, but there's the it's the way even Nick spoke about it in the movie. It was less about how it enhanced his life, but it gave him a moment of escape, and you know that's what he was looking for. I think. Um, there were voices in his head. Like so, sometimes, when you have someone that is, I'm not. I think Nick's a very smart guy, and there, you know, it, it, the one thing that they pointed to was "quote unquote" the pressures of his father. Um, now, whether or not it was justified, that's what Nick was kind of pointing to: is that you know you want to hold me in such a high standard. I'm your little boy. You want so much from me, and I'm unable to live from that. So I think there was that pressure and just other voices of expectation, perhaps. Again, whether justified or not, that's what he had. And that's what he was trying to combat was just to, as he says, very wrong in the film, just take the edge off. Right. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is it doesn't really take the edge off. If anything, it puts you right at the fucking edge. 
Right, and it, there was a line where when he was talking, I, I think it was his girlfriend at the time, um, when he started it, uh, in like I think he was like 16, 17, or I mean, he started young, but the moment where he started the hard drugs is, and he's like, I was trying to escape from life. I'm like, what life? You're, you're a teenager. What life tragedy problems do you have? And I think it was just, it was hard to connect with as just yes, this is a real-life person, but, like, as a character in a film, it was hard to connect with why even start. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, there's there's an argument to be made, like, the more you know, the more you kind of suffer, in a sense. And you have to... The text is there, and, you, like, this is one of those movies that, in an essence, kind of requires multiple viewings if you're going to really understand it. And the fact that, like, Bukowski was a hero of his and, and the music he listened to and his influences. Nirvana. Yeah, there Kurt was... Cobain's not the best influence either. Exactly. And so all these things, you know, in essence, the, the point of their message is that life is tragic. And when that's kind of what you're bombarding yourself with on a daily basis over and over. And as a young kid, when you are that impressionable, it's like, okay, well, what's where is the hope? So when you don't mm-hmm. when you don't have the hope in the movie, it's because the character didn't really believe in hope, and the father did believe in hope and he wanted the best, but he can't control his son. You yeah. know, he has to give up that control. And also, it shows that he the like the relationship between the father and the son got too comfortable that the father allowed him to do pot. You know, and he was even smoking together that celebratory joint and whatever. So the the father allowed some drug usage. Um, little did he know that that would, that's what they call a gateway drug, um, would like build the behaviors and the addiction patterns to start other drugs. And But it started with being too comfortable and allowing your, your son so much freedom, a little too much freedom. Yeah, yeah and, and that's the tough part that ate away at the father was, you know, where did I essentially go wrong? And the fact one one of the things like when you look at their relationship, the fact that they could be as open as honest as they were, on on surface level, you would say that's a big positive because most parents don't necessarily have that relationship. You know, kids do, do stupid things and they hide it from their parents. Mm-hmm. And it's like okay, if, if if anything, let's talk about it. Like we'll have an open and honest relationship. You know, if you do something bad or you're trying something, just tell me, and I'm there for you. And you know. Unfortunately, like what started off good, right. de- devoured into something atrocious that he never predicted. And I understand the the wanting to bond with your son because even the father, when during their bonding quote unquote time, was when the father was like, "Yeah, when I was a teenager, teenager, I experienced with drugs and um, did a lot of things, and like that just kind of opened the opportunity for Nick to think like if he did it, I could do it too." And it was also frustrating for the father as the parental figure who should be more strict in behavior setting. And because knowing that that happened in David's past, Nick was like, yeah, I can do it too. Yeah. It's it's a weird duality because on the one hand, if he's trying to be strict, right? Because, I, I, you know, from that perspective, I don't think if, if David said like, hey, don't do drugs, he's going to be like, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> Exactly. You know, you did drugs. I'm, I'm going to do drugs, and so there's it's it, it's a weird duality. Like you can't. He wins no way at the end. I think that's the realization most parents kind of have to come to is all I can do is 
do what I can, but they are human beings and they're going to make their own choices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the movie it kind of ends upon the fact that they're going to a, they're starting to go to meetings, meaning David, for a support group about parents and people who have dealt with addiction, right. meaning they aren't addicted, but they're dealing with it. Yeah, because it affects them too. Um, just behavior-wise, and it affects the family, especially when the kids are in the know. Um, it, it was very heartbreaking to see the little boy who's like, is Nick on drugs again? So even kids who should not be, like, have any wherewithal of drugs and that knowledge, um, to know that their older brother is on drugs, that's that's also painful to know that it affects everybody within the family. Yeah, the only hope that I have is that, okay, at least the little boy... He kind of looks at it and says, all right, I don't want to do drugs ever. Mm-hmm. You know, we never got that side of it. The story is very much David and Nick. But um, the, one of the other characters I do want to talk about is Karen. She's the stepmom. And I thought, you know, for, first, for her role, I thought she did a wonderful job and they gave her a lot to work with. Yeah. First of all, I love Mara Tierney. She was my favorite character in ER when she played Abby Lockhart. <laughs> fantastic um so she's a great actress and it was really great to see she was very understanding in every situation and she's not the evil stepmother you know she is this very supportive mother towards um nick even though they're not real you know but bi- or biological mother son and she was very supportive towards david and and she even like the moment where she actually was you know trying to chase down Nick. I was like, all right, that's that's also a good parent because David's at his wit's end trying to do whatever he can, and now it was her time to step in and do whatever she can. So it's not like she didn't try it, and it's it's painful because that she was the mother figure in this movie, and she has to take care of her own kids too, and um. And she, she's that person who's just kind of stuck witnessing everything and who wants to do more. Yeah, and, you know, the more time that goes by, I think when she has that confrontation with David about, like, hey, where are you going? And I, I, what it really came down to for me was when you see all those pictures of David and Nick and as kids they're having fun and so forth, she's essentially saying, like, you got two kids right here. And they need you just as much as Nick. Now, Nick made his choices, and obviously we're sad for him and we want to support him, but right. how many times are we going to go through this and let these other kids basically not have a dad? Right, and like they have a chance of not going in the direction that Nick has. It's like, let's focus on the current generation and let's not fuck them up, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Yeah, so that was that was hopeful, at least, I yeah. thought. I, I thought she, she was... Um, Really, she she was great. You know, Karen was that very strong, consistent, supportive person throughout. Um, but the uh, to go on the flip side, the the real biological mother, you know, Amy Ryan's character, and couldn't understand she was supposed to be this quote unquote villain, like antagonist of the film, because they started off with David yelling at her, so she's not the supportive. She's kind of like the dead me deadbeat mom. But when the movie switches, she becomes the supportive mom. And I was like, I don't understand her purpose. Well, her purpose was 
everything that they tried to do, they tried to do honest to life. And, you know, for better or worse, that's what they went for. And I think, you know, the switch, the switch that happened at first when, when David's taking care of Nick and, you know, she finds out about this, of course, her natural instincts is like, okay, you got custody. You essentially did this. Um, so there's that kind of blame and, and right or wrong, it's just, it just is what it is. Um, now David and, and like, we see the, the, the lengths that he goes to, to try to help his son. And so after a certain point, maybe the, maybe she, the wife, the ex-wife rather, realizes that, hey, maybe by not being as involved or whatever, I did, I had a hand in this somehow. And... Therefore, I have to help. And it just happens to be at a time when, you know, at this point, David's seen too much that he's not able to help. You know, she's dealing with guilt and this idea that I won't quit on my son. Right. They're in constant opposition of each other, unfortunately, because of it. Yeah, and they switch essential custody because now Nick is staying with her. And then she realizes she goes through all the, the ish that David was going through. And then we see near the end where David's now yelling at the mother instead of the opposite. Um, so you see that, yes, um, Vicky, the, the biological mother, like she, not to say she was in the wrong, but now that she has gone through the, the vicious cycle with Nick also herself, that it's it wasn't on the parents. It was more on Nick. And, and unfortunately, no how much they try to help. I want to bring back this to Karen real fast because I want I want to get your interpretation of that scene because she has that well I'll call it an argument even though it's not really her and David and then Nick sneaks into the house and she's the one that takes off after him in the truck mm-hmm. and he just kind of gets away from her and you know she she breaks down essentially and I wanted to get your interpretation of her emotions a why she did that and you know what she felt. Right. I think um, that was like the mother maternal instincts kicking over, like trying to chase after her her son, essentially. Um, but also maybe just to get the opportunity to talk to him because we didn't we didn't see like any real one on one conversations between Karen and Nick. It's always been Nick and the father. Um, so, and I think it was just her just trying to do her best to do what she can to help Nick. But unfortunately, she she couldn't catch up to him. And I think it would have been a great moment had she got the opportunity to stop Nick. Nick was ha- not having any of it. Right. But I, I think mentally, she she just really wanted to, to get a hold of him and talk to him. Yeah. Last a Jeffrey type of thing. Yeah. She tried. I'll, I'll, I'll give her that. She tried. I want, I want to talk about the ending because... Um, I had no idea how they were going to end this, right? That scene when when David basically says, like, I can't help you, I was like, are we going to end it here? Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, like, fortunately, or he, he does go to see his son, and so, you know, he's not... I, if I describe it, I would say that David's in a healthy place, that he's going to be there for his son, but he understands it's not his fault, and he's not... Fortunately, he can't go out of his way to help his son. It has to be his son. But he'll visit him. Right. And I think this is at the point, this is like the fourth time around. The, you, know, I mean, you literally lose count how many times Nick has been in and out. But this is at the point 
where David has done everything in his power and in his right as a father to help Nick. And at this point, this is where they're all hiking and whatnot, and that painful call saying, I can't help you anymore. Um, that's when he chose his current family, his healthy family. He chose happiness and, and hope in, in that sense. He, he chose the people and gave priority to them instead of Nick. And I actually, I was like, yeah, you go, Dad, because it's like you've done everything. It's like it, it is your right to not help him anymore. Um, and then when we bring it back to the cafe that they were in, and he Nick was writing essentially what you can imagine was a suicide note. It's like, yeah, that makes sense because just thematically at the beginning of the film, we saw little Nick there at the cafe and now where he is now at, at the cafe, older and hopeless Nick. It, it seemed just thematically like a full circle. Yeah, and... It did, and I, I think what, what was nice to see, an odd choice of word, but um, I think as painful as that moment is, whether in the movie or for anyone in real life, having to you know pick David's choice, you could look at it as selfish, but it's also really not, because at the end of the day, if you really want to help Nick, he has to understand that like what he's he's just bringing other people down it's mm-hmm. a vicious cycle and the only one only person that's ever going to help him is him and to continue to expect like oh i'll just come back home i'll just come back home when i need money which was a pattern that we saw even early on like when they met in, early in the movie in the like, cafe like i want to i want to go to new york I, I just need some money no no <laughs> I'm not you good. know it wasn't for new york yeah and especially after a certain point when he's like hey i just need money come on mm-hmm. no you are lying. And the point where he has sunk so low that he steals his little brother's money? Oh. Eight bucks, by the way. Eight dollars. <laughs> it's not like we're talking two... No. no significant amount of money. It's eight dollars. But like the fact that he's stealing even only eight dollars worth of money, um, that's how desperate he is. Indeed. One of the things I was actually glad, though, was that we don't focus on nick during kind of these drug binges that much we we see kind of the aftermath of it and we got some moments of like oh he's you know he he's heating up the crystal meth and all that which you know taking shots and needles i don't love that but i appreciate that it was from a storytelling perspective it was much more of a human story rather than like oh let's just show him doing drugs Right, and we don't need that because every television and every other movies that deal with drugs always, in a way, it glamorizes drugs. It, it makes them seem fun, and that's why people do drugs. It's not good. Um, but it, in a way, it, it really glamorizes drugs and just the whole process and like the euphoria and why people get addicted. Yeah, it, it causes a moment of ecstasy, and that's fine. But we don't need to see that because we already know the downfall afterwards. So, like, I like for for the choices when they went through um, the moments where he was actually high, the 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 actual enhanced sounds mm-hmm. rather than the experience. Just like everything he was hearing um, was way more dramatic and exaggerated than you would normally when you're just sitting in a room. I agree. Um, so let's. Let's backtrack a bit and talk about how this movie got made and all that. So it's based off of two works, essentially, from Nick's perspective and David's perspective. Now, Nick wrote this memoir more as a means for himself 
to chronicle what he was going through and then it him being a writer eventually turned it into a piece uh david chef originally wrote my addicted son for the new york times magazine um and that's kind of how it took off and uh, plan b being brad pitt's production company they mm-hmm. they wanted to you know take this on and really nurture it and saw something in it and essentially they did so yeah and when uh, the real David, he wrote this. He had really no plans on publishing a book. And uh, it, well, like he, he kept writing and whatnot. And it was just a way to deal with what he was going through. And um, when they released the books, it was actually two at a time. That mm-hmm. They released two autobiographies. And, you know, from that perspective, like what, what I appreciate about the filmmaking process is that they very much involved... Nick and David as part of the process. They talked to them. They wanted to get their perspective on things. Um, you know, they even saw the house and really took notice of everything in their lives to, to be able to kind of create an honest moment of what's happening. And it, 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 it's kind of odd in that way, right? When when the best movies I feel like that we talk about are the some of the more specific ones. And by having that specificity, they become universal. But the ones that try to just be universal... They're too general, and then it appeals to nobody. Right. And I, I think the great thing about it is that they did have the, the real-life people that had their influence. And, like, to get, you know, some credibility and authentication behind it, um, I didn't realize it was a real story going into it until the moment where they were on their cell phones, they were flip phones, and, and raised their phones. So I was like, okay, we're around the 2007, 2006 year because that's a deliberate choice visually to show on screen and i was like this has to be a real story if they're using razor <laughs> razor cell phones and little sure enough it was um, and old computers by the way yeah and old they had computers, a lot of good yeah. shots of computers a lot like, of yeah. big okay. computer screens that's where technology you know has advanced so much that you can tell when you're using purposely dated technology that it had to be real and it, it's interesting because this seems like like such a loving family, and it's hard when you know that this is what they went through. Yeah, I'd be very curious to know kind of where they are today. Um, in an interesting way, they chose to end the movie, I think rightfully so, on kind of title cards of, if you're dealing with this, here's how to really get help from both sides. Um, but knowing that so far it's a success story. You know, the fact that, like, again, Nick Nick is an actual writer in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, da- David's always been David. He's a successful writer for a number of publications, so kudos to him. Um, I, I'm very curious to kind of know about their relationship. Obviously, I think, you know, there's still continued love there. Um, and the fact that Nick has been sober, I think, is a... Again, when you talk about that uplifting message... The fact that that's real life and that's where we're at, I think, is awesome. Yeah, I mean, but you wouldn't know it until the end title card that now Nick is sober. It's been <laughs> currently putting timestamp like eight years. So it was like, yeah, you applaud him in that fact. But watching the film, you would never get it because there was that moment where he went about a year and a half clean. like and 18 that was, months. Yeah. yeah, and that was like, quote unquote, long for him. And then to relapse. So now knowing that it's been eight years, uh, good for him to like exceed his record in that that sense. But also, uh, 
at the end of the film, when you, like, when David goes to get him out of rehab yet again and they're out on the bench, it doesn't leave you on a happy note because you know, yeah, he almost died, but this is going to be an ongoing process that he has to fight with every day. And I think that's what, you know, ironically, it's to me, it's a very universal message that you essentially have to fight. Like, every day you wake up, even if you're not addicted, you still have essentially the same choices to make over and over. Mm-hmm. You know? The demons that you vanquished yesterday, they reappeared today. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you, 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 I don't know. I, like, I, I had a realization not too long ago that it's not like a video game where after you reach a certain level, you save and you continue from there. Like, nope, you're back to square one every day. Even like, And I'm talking, again, not even from an addict's perspective. Like, you have the, the same choices to make. And I always deduce it down to two. You can either create or you can destroy. Yeah. And and Nick's current struggle now it's is his ability to keep fighting to live every single day. Yeah. And even that's too big a tree. I, I, again, I, I boil it down to, like, from his perspective, do I have the OJ or do I have some heroin or crack or crystal meth? Mm-hmm. Just pick the OJ, brother. Pick the OJ. Um so yeah, uh, obviously a, a lot of stuff there. Um, speaking of um, kind of the addiction side of it, um, uh, Chalamet dropped. They started shooting with him dropping about thirty twenty five to thirty pounds for the scenes where he's really emaciated, um, and shooting him that way. Which, as he says, I think this was was when the scene when his dad's kind of picking him up early on in the rain. You know, he says like, "Hey, my I mentally I know I'm acting, but my body, mm-hmm. it's like, dude, what's going on? I'm in the rain, I'm I'm hungry, I'm starving. Like, what the hell's going on?" Yeah, and also it, it does show just like the Timothy's statuesque. He is tall and very very lean. <laughs> he he's a he's a skinny guy, um, and to see that, but it, it does add to the character that you know when you're on drugs, you a lot of times lose weight because of it and there was the moment where david's actually trying to describe his son he's like six foot and only 120 pounds you're like he he should be a little bit bigger than that let's go 140 145 and that's on the skinny end but only 120 for already being six foot i was like that's that's super skinny so it it already shows like how much the drugs has affected him physically Mm -hmm. yeah i agree um you know and everyone who's Everyone that I've talked about, kind of like Steve Carell, was very much on the edge of like, do I want to do this movie? But then he 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 saw the script, he read the script, and um, as he said, um, like Steve Carell's a dad in his own right, and you can imagine Steve kind of being this loving type of father. I, I, as far as that, I don't yeah. think it was a far stretch for him to get into the character. Where it became a stretch is now having to deal with you know, the loss of a son, and, and as he describes it, like, hey, I, I think about that kind of every day. All right. And Steve, Steve Carell did have hesitations going into this, like you said, um, because he was worried that the script would be too Hollywood, essentially, mm-hmm. and changing a lot of the truths because this is a real-life story. But he found that the script was what he said, quote-unquote, brutally honest. Um, that That's what essentially got him attached, and he was the, the first person to get attached to this film because they wrote this script years ago and they were milling around for like about three years just thinking of who could be a part of it not really having a set actor 
or cast in mind, but uh, Steve Carell got you know got a hold of it, and he was the first one. And then after that, other people just kept signing on. Yeah, and one of the reasons they signed him is that there's a belie- believability factor to Steve in the role. So much so that when Felix, the director, heard that Steve was attached and, and kind of placed him into that mindset, he's like, I, he says he started crying because he knew Steve would be able to do it and nail it. And, and I don't think he was wrong. Right, and this is after Foxcatcher and all that. And, I mean, Steve Carell has built his career in comedy, but he was also now successfully building his career in, in drama. And Timothy Chalamet is on the up and up for um, upcoming actors as well. So I think it was good timing for both of these guys. Absolutely. And, you know, F- Felix Van, I'm going to butcher his name. He's Belgian-born. Van Groningen. Ben, yes. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of these guys working on the movie kind of have a very personal connection to it. In the case of Felix, he says, I was young, I experimented with drugs, I could have been like Nick. It didn't happen, but it could have happened. So for a lot of reasons, I, I felt that it was important to tell the story. Yeah. Um, so kudos to him from that perspective. He's described as having emo- high, extremely high emotional IQ, um, which... You know, I, obviously, you and I haven't experienced firsthand, but seeing the source material, i.e., the movie, mm-hmm. I, I, I would say that's true. Yeah, I mean, this is a very dramatic, emotional film. They're they're not going for humor. They're not going for comedy. This is like straight drama that they're trying to win Academy Awards for. You can definitely tell, and it's not contrived in that way. But it's not a happy story. It's a very serious story. So and. You definitely felt so many different emotions while you're watching it. It's frustrating. You, there are moments where you get angry as a viewer. There are moments you're angry at the characters. You're frustrated with the situations that are happening. Um, but there are also moments where like, you really love the family because of how great of people they essentially are. Yeah, and I, I think the biggest... We, we all look to movies in a sense to be a roadmap in our own lives. And so when you start rooting for this family, like, you want the best for them. And when you're not getting it, you become frustrated, much like the characters. But then you start you start to internalize it, and you're like, I, I, where's my happy ending? Mm-hmm. And especially if you're, if you're someone that's very tied into this in your own real life, you're looking for that, that answer. And unfortunately, the answer is there's no right answer right. necessarily. Just like the the some semblance of hope that there's like a chance for a better life out there or, or like a, a new beginning or a better life. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about the rehearsals because they they rehearsed for a number of weeks, um, about two weeks beforehand, going into this. And as they describe it, it's important to have that play beforehand uh, because once you're shooting and just man that. I haven't shot too many things, but he, you always feel the pressure of time and money. Mm-hmm. So you're like, if we can just let's let's just kind of essentially play and and have some fun and and see what we got and what we can come up with. It's a lot easier and cheaper to do that. Right, and it's good to have rehearsals so the character, only the actors, can get into the emotional mindset that they need to be. This isn't an action film. This isn't a comic book film. There's not a lot of visual effects that go into it. So everything is hindered on the performances Mm -hmm. and if you don't get the actors in the right place and they 
aren't rehearsed and they don't know what to do, then like you you have you don't have a film because this movie is all about the acting and the story. Yeah, and and that from a visual standpoint, we you talked about the cell phones and the computers, but everything else, like even the the paintings, the pictures on the wall. The drawings. Felt, yeah, it felt very authentic. When you go through that house, like even if we just kind of did like a B-roll shot of something like that, you feel you feel life in it. Mm-hmm. You understand the, the lives of these people one way or the other, and that there was love in it. And it's not you know, and the only thing that's chaotic is what they're dealing with. Right. I mean, it was a beautiful house too. There was light. There was windows everywhere. Um, it was always brown and orange and sunlight literally so like you you sense it was a loving home but the only dark room was nick's room yeah. very dark room indeed yeah uh now it took place in northern california however they shot it in southern california <laughs> so they had to do some work on that um for the most part they, they shot in two houses one for the exterior one for the interior the interior they kind of Especially for the second floor, they built a Hollywood set. Yeah. Um, the the house was essentially split into the first floor was the actual on-set location, and the second was a studio, sound studio. And, oh, oh thanks, Jeff. Um, same, producer, Jeff. It was the same house as Big Little Lies. Thank you, Jeff, our producer. And that story takes place in Monterey, which is more north, <laughs> northern <laughs> California. Uh, interesting. I didn't know that, but yeah, it, it shows that it was just from the house. It definitely had its own personality and certain type of atmosphere. But every time you went into Nick's bedroom, you sensed this darkness. You sensed this emotional chaos that he was going through, and then going through his journals. That was rough. That yes, <laughs> that's it was really the only word I can think of. It, it that was a chaotic mess. Which, when the mother finally takes him in, he's got that kind of attic, you know, room. A totally different feel. Now, whether she did that on purpose or not, like everything's blue and white. Uh, you know, not a lot of clutter. Everything's going to be organized, right? His books are going to go in the bookshelf, but it, you know, it, it feels open and in an odd sense like it's not minimalist but compared to his other room certainly a lot more minimal right right and the different types of lives that he had when he was with his biological mother and when he was with david um but it really doesn't matter what environment he is because when he went to with his 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 mother that was a very bright room but he was still going through a lot of problems yeah, but I, I, there, you know, not that it's the only fix, but there is something to be said about your environment because he, I think he was honest in that moment, and she asked him, you know, how do you feel, and he says, like a human, when all you're surrounded by is darkness, darkness, mm-hmm. eventually it has an effect on you. Now it has such a deep effect that now all of a sudden, even when you go into light, you carry that darkness with you and spread that darkness into this bright room. Right. You know, so it's. That's that's my reading of it, at least. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the, the paintings and then all the artwork from Karen, those were actual real paintings from the real Karen. And, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, which is which is cool. I was like, yeah, uh, that's neat. <laughs> Why not, right? Yeah, she's an artist. Save some production design, too. <laughs> yeah. Gives her a nice little shout-out. Like, 
It's awesome. A little bit. And it was like arguably one of the things, the most colorful things in the entire film. Because mm-hmm. it also just shows Karen's personality that she she is more lively. In an odd way, though, her drawings are not like it, it, her drawings are surrealist, right? Mm-hmm. She's got a lot of eyes and things like that. And so I I don't want to read too much into it, but I do believe that she artistically could have had some influence. Now, he he added like the darker elements to it. But the fact, like, it's not like she's painting uh, a Mona Lisa that's much more realistic. Mm-hmm. This is interpretive art, and certainly his is very much interpretive. Um, so I do see a little bit of an influence there yeah. from her to him. A little bit. Um, but it also just shows that she, she, yes, you said surrealist, but she's also just always there watching people. She, She's the witness. She's literally the witness. It, like going through the experience of everybody. Good point. Good point. Yeah, I, I, I think I don't want to see this movie, not because it's not a great movie, but it's a, obviously a very painful movie to watch. So the rewatchability factor is not very high, but I, I am very curious. Like I'd love to kind of, I, I think there's there's a lot to dissect there from just a visual standpoint that I would love to kind of at some point dive into. Yeah, visually, I think it, it was well done. Um, you have to go into this film knowing what it was. I I went into not knowing, but it, it'd be better if you went in with a heads up that this is the kind of film you're about to watch. Probably. Well, uh, you know, speaking of as we're talking about Karen, one of the, one of the things that she says about Felix is that there was such a comfort level. He had such a confidence in what he was doing that he made everyone else feel comfortable. Something that she says isn't always the case on other projects that she's done. So she's worked a lot for a very, very long time. So, so kudos, kudos there. Um, you know, uh, Felix overall brought kind of the rest of his crew. Certainly, his cinematographer uh, Ruben Pens has worked with him before. Um, then, and in the editing process, they had a very long cut, about four hours. And it just kind of wasn't really working. So Felix eventually brought his longtime editing collaborator, Nico Luennen. Luennen. I, I, sorry, <laughs> yeah. I butcher these names. Luennen. Um, anyway, uh, you know, and they finally started breaking the story. And Now, granted, Felix says, like, hey, at the end of the day, having a four-hour first cut is not really that uncommon for at least him. And overall, it's not really that uncommon for most movies. No. You know, you kind of, you just put it together and see what you got. And then, as he says, we trim it, and then eventually we have to start taking out scenes. Now, when you talk about that there's no moments of brevity, let's say, maybe in this four-hour version there was. Maybe. And I think what they took out was all the happiness. Yeah. From four hours to two hours. What do we got to cut? Cut the happy. It's a sad, depressing film. (laughs) And we're just going to call it that. But also, it, it could have been moments where they cut away the the drug addiction, drug-influenced moments because we've seen it so many times, painfully, over and over again, what it's like or what whoever is feeling during the moments they're high. Like, we've, we've seen it. And I think take away all those moments where throughout all these years that Nick was getting high, that's it's like, save us, yeah. <laughs> in a way. I'm like, thank you for taking that out because we don't need to see it again. Well, it, it's not that dissimilar, you know, like when Shakespeare wrote love, 
meaning about love. It's not an actual play or anything. <laughs> well, no, maybe there is. I don't know Shakespeare that well. But he didn't need to put in sex scenes. You got it. Right. Right? So in, from that perspective, you contextualize the love, and then the act of love is unnecessary. You, you, you interpret it. So as far as this is concerned, you don't need that side of it. It's just gratuitous at that point. What you're really getting is the effect, what leads him to it, and the ramifications more yeah, importantly after, after it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that it completely would have been useless. Yeah. It's a redundant. Exactly. Um, now, as far as the music is concerned, there is no music, which is not, which is an interesting choice. There's, yeah, there's di- diegetic music. And, like, we, we had Nirvana, of course, because big influence in John Lennon's Beautiful Boy. And those are really about the only two songs that were purposely placed in the movie. Yeah, as far as like actual compositions, you know, having a score for the movie, there is none. Which, when you talk about the, like, even even having a sad song, kind of allows you a moment of break because, in an odd way, like at least there's something to take you out of what you're fully watching. Because mm-hmm. there's kind of like an artifice, let's say. Whereas this, if there's not really music and if, if if it's all just part of the scene then you're really living that moment yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know there's nothing to separate you from that from the movie you're just you're at that point you might as well be karen in the room with them yeah and the thing is music is usually placed in films to make you feel a certain emotion and when you take that away and you strip it away it is literally just real life because real life doesn't have music playing in your background unless it's in your head but it it shows that just how painful it is because it kind of makes it more lifeless it doesn't you know even even those moments like with sadness it's not like well it just goes to show how powerful the performances of both and well technically all the actors were because you have that emotion regardless of the music it's not like you need a musical cue to be like be very sad here. Mm-hmm. There's a point in time in the movie, the entire theater started crying. They didn't need... <laughs> there was no cue for that cry. It just yeah. happened, and the fact that it, that's how powerful this movie is, is a testament to the movie. Yeah. I think it's good, because sometimes music just gets way too overbearing. Yeah, and I think people overuse it half the time. Yeah, or use it wrong. Yeah, they just... Uh, what, what I see oftentimes, people use music as a crutch of like, okay, the scene's not working, great, let's add music into it and no fool people. It's like, huh, music should enhance what's there, not really you know, yeah. alter it or supplement it or whatever the hell word I'm looking for. Right. Um, anywho, it had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival not too long ago, back in September. Um, did well there uh, and just released. Now, in the UK, it's not coming out till 2019. Yeah. Which, it's not in many theaters to begin with. Yeah, this is a very, very, very limited Oscar movie, limited movie. and But also, if you think about it, it's a very American story. These are Americans. It's dealing with them. Not that drug addiction isn't a worldwide problem, but th- these are two people within the, the like U.S., America um, so I can't imagine how well it's going to do over in the UK because 
it's not really that demographic. Uh, I mean, you'd be surprised. I don't know. I, I can't say with 100% certainty. Obviously, it's a, it's a more niche audience to begin with. Maybe Felix's Belgians will go out in droves to see this movie. Um, but I, th- I, think, I think the movie works well enough that there is a universality to it. Um, so who knows? I, I can't predict it. What's interesting is that only it has only a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, as they say, according to the consensus, that uh, the acting makes up for the story's muted emotional impact. I would say, if anything <laughs> that this movie has, it's an emotional impact. Not a happy one, yeah. but it's impactful. It's it's emotional, but it's also definitely muted, too, because it's not happy. It's It, it went for one type of like tone, and that it was serious and dramatic, and they got it. They definitely got it. Well, I'm, I'm still surprised by the 68. Uh, I think... That's actually I, fairly high. Really? I I personally think I would personally rank it lower. But All right. I think huh, we disagree there, I guess. <laughs> well, how about this? Do we? Do, I, I don't the, necessarily know if it's... The audience put it at 78. There you go. Uh, do you feel... Like, I, I don't know if this is Oscar picture-worthy, but I do believe the acting. And I want, like, I, I think uh, certainly Steve Carell and Sh- Timothy Chalamet, but also I would love to see Karen, um, her, you know, her, um, the actress get, get nominated there. Tierney. I think it'd be good. That, I mean, Steve Carell I think would be really great um, if he got nominated for. I think Timothy Chalamet, it's... It's the same type of, uh, not to sound terrible, but I personally don't like Timothy Chalamet as an actor. All the roles that I've seen so far with him, it's only like a handful because he is still up and coming. Um, It's that angsty teenager. Mm -hmm. And that's really not that hard to act. I was like, my nephew could play angsty teenager, you know, but like. Well, Maybe for the emotional driven, it, it's it was frustrating. Like you can see the frustration, but I don't think it's one of the best performances. Yeah, it'll be interesting as more movies come out. I think I think for me, Steve Carell does carry a lot of the movie. I would like to see um, her get nominated uh, for for the role of Karen. But if if Timothy wasn't nominated. I kind of would be okay with it because I think from his roles, I don't know if it's his strongest roles, believe it or not. Um, and I do believe that there's going to be other fantastic roles to nominate. So I will. I, I wouldn't be that dissatisfied if I'm like, oh, he's not on the ballot. Right. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they he did get nominated because it is that type of... Um, this film is definitely released for the Academy Awards. <laughs> it's seemingly and rightfully so. Um, so I think he'll definitely get nominated. I can't say he'll win. I don't mm-hmm. see him winning. I don't see him role. winning, but maybe a nomination. I could see a nomination. Uh, I, I think for adapted, um, you know, adapted screenplay, I think this could be nominated. Right. Uh, and you know whether it wins, we'll, we'll find out. Jeff, Jeff is in the booth now. Jeff, the the award season is like your Super Bowl. This is like that's right. Yes, it is. What, what do you What do you think? I know you haven't seen the movie. No, but... I, I've been hearing buzz for both of them. I think the buzz is much more in the Timothy Chalamet camp than the Steve Carell camp. What? That's what, what I'm hearing. 
Um, and I think Timothy Chalamet, he's kind of um, an it guy right now in Hollywood, which might help his chances. Um, I don't know, but it does seem like reception from the um, film has been a little lukewarm. So, Boo. But there's always films where the performances get recognized, but not necessarily the picture itself. Yeah, well, I'd, I mean, you know, I can see that. It, I, I wouldn't say it boy yet, because Lucas Hedges, I think, is actually a better actor than Timothy Chalamet. If you think about the last three films that we've talked about, Timothy Chalamet, this film, Call Me By Your Name, and Lady Bird, he plays the angsty teenager in every single one of them. So it's not out of his wheelhouse. We know he can do it. That's why I say this is the same role he's done over and over and third time over again in this film. So it's very frustrating to see him getting nominated for the exact type of personality he's been playing for the last two years. Mm-hmm. This goes to show people just want more of the same. Anywho, that does it for our discussion. Any final thoughts, Marissa, before we wrap it out? Um, I can't say I recommended this film, but for good performances and uh, good cinematography, go see it. All right, fair enough. Uh, I I don't think this movie's for everyone, but I do think it's a very powerful movie. Uh, that whether you know if you're struggling with one aspect of this in your life or not, I think it still impacts you. I mean, unfortunately, drug addiction is for most people like you can separate it by one or two degrees at, you know at most unfortunately it's such a prevalent thing to varying dis- degrees um so i think at the very least it does spark a lot of conversation and speaking of which i do encourage you to comment and let us know your thoughts i am curious to read them and truly truly appreciate you for joining us um again it's very limited right now at the time of our taping and so i am curious as it builds up to see what you Think of it at home. Anyway, at Serafini TV is where you can interact with Marissa directly. Yep. Um, also, her and I do a series of books to movies called Adapted over on Book Circle Online. So we're building up our library, pun intended. Yes. So feel free to check that out. I'm at Phil Svitek. We will be doing next week The Nutcracker and Bohemian Rhapsody. So look out for that, and I will be doing a solo version of Bad Times at the El Royale, because reasons that I will tell later. And of course, you can check out our other past episodes. We have over 500 episodes we've done, so if there's a movie that you've seen in the recent history, we've probably covered it. So look out for that. Thank you as always. We'll see you next time on another Anatomy of Movie. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principals. Skyships.